the Royal Australian Air Force in person, 1921 to 2021. Ad Astra Aviator. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. The narrator is Gareth McRae, OAM. In the post-Vietnam era, Australian forces have been involved in numerous international peacekeeping missions through the United Nations and other agencies, and these include in the Sinai, Persian Gulf, Rwanda, Somalia, East Timor and the Solomon Islands, as well as many overseas humanitarian relief operations, while more recently they've also fought as part of a multilateral series of forces in Iraq and also Afghanistan. The Air Force has also played a major role in peacekeeping and humanitarian missions, including Bougainville, Cambodia, East Timor, Indonesia, Pakistan, Papua New Guinea, Rwanda, the Solomon Islands, Somalia, and also the Sudan, in which many hundreds of Air Force personnel have been involved. The Iraq War in 2003 saw the Australian Defence Force contribution, which consisted of 2,050 personnel, including 620 RAAF members. I've got to say, in case you weren't aware, that... uh, most of the interviews, well not all, most, but a lot of the interviews that we've done with these various people for our centenary of the RAAF in 2021 have been done at Fighter World, which is attached to Williamtown RAAF base. And it really is a place that maybe you should think about coming and visiting one day because it's quite fascinating. Today's interview done at Fighter Command is with Wing Commander Retired Ron Hack. Now, Ron joined the Air Force in 1970. He thought progression to astronaut was through fast jet and test pilot qualifications and that's exactly what he did except for the astronaut bit which we'll get to in a moment his fast jet experience was mainly mirage and f-18 hornets his test pilot career began with the empire test pilot school at boscombe down and eventually included flying the first flights of most RAAF Hornets as they rolled off the assembly line. His test flying sojourn was full of exciting and dangerous moments of which he tells many stories which make your hair stand on edge and we'll try and do that today. Ron, how are you? I'm doing very well, thank you. That's good. Now, it's quite interesting for a test pilot, a pilot with the RAAF, that you actually applied for Qantas originally and didn't get the job. How come? Well, I was a country boy and a bit naive probably. (laughs) When did you learn to fly? Uh, when I joined the Air Force. When you joined the Air Force. Yeah, never flown an aeroplane until I, um, I flew from Brisbane to Melbourne to start join the Air Force. You were flown from Brisbane or you actually flew? From no, I was flown in you, an airliner. In yeah. an airliner, right. <laughs> in a Qantas airline? Yeah, uh, probably was. <laughs> <laughs> All right, look, Ron, you joined the Air Force in RAAF and I, I tend to ask most people that I'm talking to, why did you choose the Air Force? Well, um, would you believe, do you remember, you don't remember, but uh, there was a magazine called uh, Boys' Own Journals. I do remember. There you go. And I remember well, Biggles. <laughs> Bigglesworth. But anyway, go on. Well, there was a Boys' Own Journal which had on the front cover a photo of a, uh, I think it was a, an early jet fighter with a pilot and his helmet, his oxymask dangling from that. 
and that was my inspiration. And then on the farm, I used to watch the Sabres fly overhead on the way to Townsville, I guess, from here, from Williamtown. And uh, I just fascinated the contrails, four, four aeroplanes in formation, conning all the way up. And I just lie on my back on the paddock and watch these aeroplanes go, and then going around up the cows for milking, of course. But <laughs> yeah. So you had repeated applications for fighter training? Yes. Every- uh, well, when I graduated my, with my wings, they sent me to fly DC-3s. And uh, I was a bit disappointed about that because I was a bit of a glamour. Yeah, I thought I was anyway. <laughs> and uh, I thought I'd never go and pick up the chicks this way. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't your motivation, surely, Ron. Anyway, go on, no. continue. It's interesting. When we graduate from pilot training, um, they give you the option of, of listing your uh, preferences, where you yep. want to go fly. Yep. And um, I had no problem with flying helicopters, but I didn't want to fly a helicopter in Vietnam. If I was going to go to Vietnam, I wanted to be in a combatant aeroplane because I thought the choppers were simply doing a support role. Uh, so I tried to push choppers further down my preference list, and I knew there was a guy on a course prior to me who had gone to DC-3, so I thought there can't be many DC-3s around, so I mean, too many slots, so I put DC-3 number three. So I went fighters, Mirage in those days, Canberra bomber, uh, DC-3s. DC so you got DC-3s? And I picked up DC-3s. Now, I know that one of the other interviewees I did talked about the Malaysia emergency and talked about confrontation and talked about Indonesia. Uh, And we are talking a very important period of time. In 1972, flying a DC-3, where did you land and what did you see or what was involved there? Okay, yeah, that was probably the highlight of my tour on DC-3. It was towards the end of my tour. Um, We were in an AVAID survey role and um, we'd, as as you know, we sold the Sabres to the Indonesians. And they were all based in a, at a base called Ishiyudi yep. in central Java. Uh, and we also, with that sale of the aeroplanes, we also gave them a, a, um, a nav aid device called a CATF, Controller Aided Direction Finding. Yep. So basically that's just a, a radio transmitter or receiver. And uh, when a pilot transmits on a certain frequency, uh, controller on the ground, we get a strobe pointing to where he, where he is, reference the base. And so he can then steer him back towards the yep. base. Uh, so in those days, the DC-3 was used as a navigate survey platform. So we're given the task of going up to Indonesia to Ishiyudi to uh, survey this CADAF site. Mm. And so that was the highlight. So we took a DC-3. It took us about five days to get there. <laughs> but in terms of the flying up there, um, the minimum safe altitude was about 12,000 feet because uh, we were surrounded by Mountains. volcanoes. Yep. Um, and so we did all our flying at about 14,000 feet, mostly, and no oxy. Cause, so um, that was always a bit shaky as well in the old DC-3, but uh, we managed to get the job done. You actually ended up also then in London in the late 70s, 1977, I think, uh, to the Empire Test Pilot School. What yes. was that all about? Tell us about that. 78. Um, well, it's actually um, the way you transition from a line operator... You're right. Uh, whatever you may be flying, to into the profession of test flying, if you like. And it's designed to train you as an experimental test pilot. A large part of that course was about uh, how to write your, how to record and write your observations of the platform you're flying. Right. But it's also to break down some of the indoctrination you get. When you fly an aeroplane routinely, 
you become very familiar with the, the checks and the, and the procedures and the way you operate that machine. And it's very hard to break out of that habit. Um, and then obviously in an experimental test flying role, where you, f you may be flying something that's never been flown before, in the old days, of course, it wasn't even, they didn't have, even have simulators or, or uh, wind tunnels necessary to check them out. Mm. So uh, they had to break down that indoctrination so that you were comfortable with jumping, anything, yeah, jumping from one aeroplane to another or into something brand new, and that was what it was all about: was breaking down that indoctrination, so you became a bit more comfortable. I wouldn't say we were more competent; we were just more comfortable. But within the first two weeks, we were checked on five different aeroplane types. That went from a, a jet trainer to a twin-engine light transport to the Canberra bomber. And so five aeroplanes, and the way they did it was uh, your first ride was a familiar ride with an instructor. The second ride, they put you under a hood and gave you an instrumenting test. So you flew the whole mission without seeing the ground. And then the third ride was solo by yourself mm. in each of those aeroplanes. And that was all done within two weeks. So therefore, let's assume you've, you've jumped out of a, a DC-3 and you've jumped into a, a Sabre. Mm-hmm. What goes through your mind when you first sit in the second different type of platform? What, what do you well, think? What do you do to accommodate yourself to that craft? Well, part of the course and part of that process is to get hold of the flight manual. You read the flight manual, but you, what you do is pick out the important things, the things that you should know or need to know that you don't have time to refer. Um, you know, you don't have time to actually look at a checklist or, okay. or uh, go back and dig into your memory banks so and also you give yourself a cheat sheet so you have <laughs> those you have those things written down like engine fire engine failure and really they're the main ones and also you recognize after a while that um where in a normal aeroplane there's a lot of a lot of the procedures you do are just there they're sort of um academic or uh, administrative you don't have to do them you know for example you don't need to check all your gauges Right. If they don't work, they don't work. And uh, in the test line game, of course, you don't fly. Now, in an airline game, that doesn't work. You need to know they're going to work sure. before you go flying, of course. But, but in the test line game, if something doesn't work when you power it up, well, you just don't go flying. So it's not important you do all the checks precisely as you would in a normal line operation. Okay. And in that course that you started in 1977, when you graduated... I think you had a reasonably important royal at your graduation, didn't oh, you? Oh, we did. It was actually 1978. but 78, um, sorry. Yeah. Yeah, Prince Charles was our guest of honour at, um, at our graduation dinner. Did and Charles is fantastic. He, um, we met him all that day before, all that day in the hangar. And he came around and set, shook all the hands and said day and had a few words. And at that stage, we were in the, we were in the process of deciding whether to buy the F-16 or the F-18. Ah, and he was, he was obviously brief, so he, he said to me, he said, well, Roddy, you reckon, Ron, are you going to get the F-16 and the F-18? And I said, oh, I reckon it'll be the F-18. And he asked me why, and I said, well, because it's twin engine, and we, are, we want to operate it a long way offshore. Okay, anyway. so 1978, for the next four years, you do flight tests, and I've got a list here, Mirages, F-111s, Mackies, Nomads, CT-4s. That really does test you, jumping from one aircraft to another aircraft. I should qualify that. I didn't actually fly the F-11. I just managed projects. So in other oh. words, I had to know the aeroplane. I had to know its, its flight envelope, its uh, capabilities, its systems. So what did uh, you fly? I was flying, I flew, flew all the others. all the others. Yeah, all the others. How yeah. do they compare? How oh, did they compare? Chalk and cheese, of course. Uh, 
you know, when you talk about a Nomad versus a Mirage, you know, the Nomad's a, a very light uh, turboprop yeah. uh, commuter. And the Mirage, of course, is, as you know, a, a high-performance high jet performance fighter. High-performance jet yeah. fighter. But, you know, once again, um, the, what the Mirage does is high-performance aeroplanes, they build up your metal processes. You get become comfortable at thinking in, in, in phase with the aeroplane time-wise. Yeah. So to gump, jump into something that's not as demanding is, uh, is really simple. So yeah. it's like a toy car composed to a racing car. Yeah, basically, yeah. So... Uh, I didn't have a problem, and as I said, you learn after a while what checks, what things are important in the aeroplane, uh, things you must know. For example, in a twin-engine aeroplane, you've got to be wary of asymmetric uh, performance. So in other words, you lose an engine failure at a critical time on takeoff, you've got to know how to deal with it. So they're things you, you, you teach yourself. Uh, so just tell me, let's, you're in a twin mm-hmm. jet prop plane. Mm-hmm. You're taking off, one engine fails. Mm-hmm. What goes through your mind? What do you do? How well, do you compensate? Well, you compensate with rudder. You've got to keep the aeroplane flying straight. Yes. So you compensate with rudder initially, and then you need a bit of roll control as well to uh, keep the wings level. Um, and then you simply uh, look at a speed. There's a minimum speed you should try and achieve. Mm. Otherwise, you run, out of, you run out of your control. And if that happens, then, of course, you start yawing and you'll, you'll spear in. But uh, the basic aim is to keep it, keep the thing straight, and keep it climbing if you can. In some of those aeroplanes, the climb performance on single engine is very, very, very poor. And uh, a single engine jet, for example, is poor or can be, can be, yep. And that's so, one of the problems. Is if it happens at the wrong time, and you let, let the speed get too slow, you won't have the performance to fly away, or you won't have the controllability to fly away. So of the Mirage, the F-111, which you didn't fly, the Mackie, the Nomad, the CT-4, which was the easiest to take off in? Uh, taking off's all very easy. Uh, probably the hardest one to take off in was the PC-9. Did so I mention why that would that have been? Just because very powerful engine, quite a large radius propeller, lots of yaw as you applied power. And yaw is what? Yaw is directional. Directional, yeah. left or right? Left or right, yeah. Okay. So lots of yaw, and you had to actually um, work quite hard on, well, keep it straight with the nose wheel steering on the rudders, but at the same time, you got the yaw effects of the, of the uh, prop wash mm. and so forth. So you're test flying, you're test piloting, you're training, you're doing all those things. The Mir- Let me just focus on the Mirage for a moment, because a lot of, there's a lot of people have some opinions about the Mirage. How good a jet fighter was it, and why? Um, in a purest sense... Probably not the best jet fighter. It was quite okay, but it, the, pro, the limitation was it, it wasn't a great manoeuvring aeroplane in the pitching plane, that is turning, uh, because it, it's, uh, its maximum G speed, in other words, a minimum turn radius speed, was too fast. Oh. It was about 370 knots, 380 knots from memory, whereas a lot of the other fighters at the time, it was more like 320 knots. So they could, they could turn inside the Mirage's circle. So a Mirage in a dogfight, as, as opposed to a tide of turning aircraft, would have been at a disadvantage. Affirmative. The only advantage we, the Mirage had was that it, could, it had enough thrust to use the vertical. And get out of it. Whereas some of the opposition, they could turn, in, turn inside us, but they couldn't use the vertical. Oh, okay. Uh, so we could actually use the vertical to, uh, to gain the advantage. So pre-Hornets, pre-Hornets, mm-hmm. How would you rank 
fighter capability of the aircraft we had access to, Australia had access to? At the time, well, there was a, the Lightning, the English Electric Lightning, which is the, I don't know if you know that, yep. airplane, but twin-engine, um, double-barrel shotgun type yep. thing. Uh, the F-4, uh, the Mirage, and the F-104, the, uh, the Star, Starfighter. Yep. And the F-111? No, the F-111 wasn't really a fighter, even though it was called a fighter. It was. Um, it didn't have the manoeuvre capability to okay. be a, okay. a dogfighter, so I wouldn't include that in So the, where would you rank them? I'd rank it uh, probably... Honestly, I couldn't really rank them. The F-4 had some advantages. Uh, it had better thrust-to-weight ratio than the Mirage, uh, but it was a bigger aeroplane, had smoky engines, so in a dogfight you could see it for miles... And therefore, you had, you'd have the advantage. Whereas we were tiny, and you couldn't see you couldn't see the mirage until it was in within five miles. So and then it's, it's too late. Too late. Yeah. yeah. Um, the Lightning was a big truck. I flew the Lightning on test pilot's course, and the longest mission I did was thirty-five minutes because then we were out of fuel. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't have fuel in the fin. But there you go. <laughs> I will now glide my plane home. Yeah. Right. Uh, but yeah, we, we weren't we weren't configured with big tanks and stuff either, so it had more range than that. Sure, ultimately, but um, it couldn't turn either. It's um, it had a high lift wing like the Mirage, so it, it wasn't didn't have a great turning performance either. So okay, of them, I, I think we were probably close to being up there with the Phantom. And in fact, we used to fight the Phantoms. Uh, I never did personally, but I know we did all the time in training. And, yeah, training yeah, in training. And, um, and we always perform quite well against them. Yeah. From other people I've spoken to, it sounds like even though we're a much smaller group, Air Force-wise, compared to the United States of America, we did pretty well. We punched well and truly above our weight. We like to think that, and I think that's probably true, partly because um, they're a big outfit, and one thing I, I sensed was they're very good pilots, are exceptional, but... They only have about 5% of those. The rest of their pilot fraternity are very average pilots. Mm. Whereas we have a lot of people who sort of, uh, most of our people sit between the average and the very good, yeah. with, the, with the odd exception. Yep, okay. And so I think that gave us the edge uh, All right. in terms of our capability. Oh, yep. We mentioned the United States. You go to the United States because you want to qualify on Hornets. How did that go? Tell me about that. I didn't want to qualify in Hornets. I was sent there by the Air Force. But, uh, well, you know, it was a natural stepping stone. The Mirage was coming to the end of its era. Um, I was a test pilot. Um, oh, sorry. I keep doing that. Yeah, that's all right. Um, they, um, the idea was that to come back and do the, uh, the production flying out of Avalon, because we're going to put the aeroplane together at Avalon, uh, the Air Force attitude was that we wanted test pilots to do that work. That's you. I was one of them. There were three altogether. I yep. was, but um, and that was just simply for credibility with the U.S. Navy, basically. You know, so instead of putting a line pilot in that role, they wanted a test pilot in there just okay. to make sure there's no question marks about what we're doing down there. Um, so I was lucky enough to be at the right stage of my career. Uh, in the right posting cycle to get a Guernsey to go to the US and train on the Hornet. So what was it flying for the very first time in a Hornet? What was that like? Oh, as I said, compared to the Mirage, it was a very easy aircraft to fly. The difference was, and this is something that people don't get, um, most aeroplanes are easy to fly, but to operate the aeroplane is very, very, it can be quite complex and difficult. 
Now, the Mirage was complex in, in the way, in, in the sense that it didn't have enough sensors and enough uh, systems on board to make it easy. You had to keep your, for example, the fuel system was complicated. Well, not right. complicated, but it, it required monitoring the whole time. So that, that took away from your mental ability to do the job, that is intercept and sure. do other things. The Hornet, on the other hand, a uh, very complex aeroplane, could do a, a very complex job, but it also had systems in bo on board to allow you to do that easily. Uh, so uh, it was probably, uh, it was easier aeroplane to fly because it didn't have same, some of the handling characteristics that the Mirage had, the bad, well not bad, but uh, difficult handling characteristics. So very easy to fly and it also had a lot of systems on board to help you do your job and do it much easier. So, so as a fighter aircraft for the RAAF, yeah. it was a pretty good buy. It was a fantastic buy. And that's, that's attested by the fact that I first flew in 1984 and it's been around till now. So that's what, it's 36, 37 years. And so it'll only be re probably being retired in 2021, maybe. From here, yeah. it's still operating in, the, in Canada, it's still operating in Switzerland, it's still operating in America. They're going to use it over there as a aggressor aeroplane. So, so how, how were the, the various Hornets updated? What I mean, they must have changed. That is, that we're not flying the same if, uh, if Hornet as we flew in 1980s. How have they changed over the years? Well, the Hornet airframe is the same. What's changed is the way um, the systems have been upgraded uh, software-wise. So, And probably some of the flight control laws have been subtly changed as well to improve their, their handling qualities in certain areas. I'm not sure about that. I'll, yeah, yeah, that's, that all, that's all right. But it's mainly in the systems, in, in the sensor pack, in uh, the radar, what it can do and can't do. Um, that's where the, the changes have happened. Uh, so it's not really so much in the airframe and its engines or performance. It's just the technology yeah. that goes into the plane. It's the sensors and the, um, the, the weapons you have on board to do a job, yeah. It must be a testament to the quality of the Hornet that... A, we're still flying them. Yeah. B, they are still being flown in those other nations. That must be a really significant testament to its capability and its de original development. Yeah, it's actually, when you think about it, just from a structural point of view, to keep an, a hunk of metal or a, a machine for that long operating in that environment is quite impressive, without, excluding all the other stuff, all the... the, the the actual functional stuff of the machine, the job it's got to do, just to keep that that platform operating is quite impressive. Mm. Joining in 1970, what's the RAAF like as a career? Tell me about its culture, its feeling. Well, in when I joined, um, you know, we we hadn't long been out of Korea. We were in Vietnam, uh, so. The Air Force uh, leadership had some combat experience. And with that came a sense of camaraderie, which they had to have when they were deployed away uh, remotely, not with families, not living in a static home base type mm. arrangement. Uh, and also a spirit, you know, a real can-do spirit, which I thought was fantastic. And, and we all aspire to that. Mm. We try to emulate that without having the experience ourselves and and that often that often goes in the poo but that's okay uh, and we weren't very good at it because it was by, it was contrived 
uh, stuff. But anyway, um, but that dissipated with time as as more people, you know, the the old and bolds, if you like, the people with the experience retired and uh, left the service. Then those those positions were filled by more mm. people who hadn't had that experience, and therefore some of that spirit left. Mm. And I think uh, that's that's where the uh, Air Force lost the weaver's way. They just they just didn't understand what their real purpose was. They become a bit more of a um, a domestic um, flying operation rather than a buddy combatant operation. Yeah. I understand. And, yeah. and even though you're now not currently with the RAAF, former wing commander, retired wing commander, would you now look at the Air Force in 2020, 21, 22 as having developed into something far more professional than it was then? I, th- I think so, exactly. Um, when you say professional, they're, they're far more um, disciplined in what they do and why they do it. Uh, whereas we're a little bit ill-disciplined, I guess, mm. in my era, and that came out of the experiences of the of the previous skirmishes that we've been involved in. Sure, because you know they didn't they didn't have the structures, the management structures, or the organisational structures in those days to actually apply some of that discipline. That we when I, when I say discipline, I don't think th- I'm not talking personal discipline. I'm talking organisational organisational discipline. Yeah. discipline. So. Speaking of discipline, that's, a, that's another wonderful sound, jet taking off or jet landing. It's fantastic. Yeah. The sound of freedom, they call it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so. I, I may be wrong, but of all of the confrontations that Australia has been involved in since World War I, perhaps the RAAF has been involved in every single one of them, in every single era, arena of war. Yep. I think of the Malaysia emergency and the confrontation, we didn't necessarily have as many naval or army combatants involved in those two confrontations as we did with the RAAF. Am I right in assuming that we've been involved in everything? Uh, Yeah, we have, and that's partly because uh, air power is very, very pervasive. You can deploy it quickly, you can keep keep it fairly secure, but it has the ability to project power and project influence. Mm. So whereas if you go use a land force, they've actually got to be involved directly. So yeah. they're hard to, hard to protect. And naval forces, they're quite vulnerable too because you know, to, to actually protect them from an air threat requires a massive, massive support infrastructure. And we just can't afford it. As you know, we've got rid of the carrier so because yeah. we can't afford to keep one. Um, so that's a shame. I think it's a shame. But yeah, I, look, I do too. I wish wish we still had a carrier. The trouble is, we need three of them. To be honest, if you're going to have a carrier force, you need three of them. But then, to protect the carrier force, you need a huge amount of uh, destroyers other and ships. other yeah. ships. So it becomes a real uh, cost multiplier. Yeah. One carrier. So well, it's an important year for the RAAF 2021. Let me tell you, as far as the centenary is concerned. Uh, look, I have asked this question of other people, but I'd like your your feedback as well. You're a wing commander. You have people under you. Mm -hmm. How important is it that you develop an attitude that everyone feels part of a team? How important was that for you as a wing commander? Extremely important, but I'm not sure I was very good at it. But, uh, you know, you'd have to ask my subordinates what they thought of me. But uh, uh, 
one of the issue, one of the big things about being a commander, a leader anywhere, is to have some empathy. If you cannot relate to your people and some of their issues and uh, some of their aspirations, some of their body, uh, and take some input from them about where you want to go and where you should be going, um, you're probably not doing the right thing by them or mm. by yourself. So I think it's very important that you engage with your people with a level of empathy. Mm. And I think that's probably the most important thing about being a leader, regardless of what, what field you're in. Yeah. You would have, and this would be true of Navy and Army as well, perhaps more so of the Navy because they're away at sea all the time. When you're based overseas, a lot of the people who go have family back in Australia. Yep. That separation must be taxing. It is. Um, it put, Especially when you're young, young and virile as a bloke, it yep. puts a lot of pressures on your own, um, what's the word, integrity, yep. if you like moral integrity um, and also on your wife of course or your partner mm. at home um, and you know it's it, it, it actually da- it, it can damage your relationship with your kids for example um, in my case I lived in 25 different houses in 5 different countries in 25 years um, and my eldest boy was damaged because we took him out of one location to another right at the wrong time in his emotional development. You know, he's about 13 or 14. And uh, this is probably outside this uh, scope no, of this uh, podcast. No, but one of the things I recognise later in life is that he was at the stage where he's just developing mateship, real mateships, real friendships, not playmateships. Real fr- he's actually getting engaged with his mates at an intellectual level rather yep. than at a, just a play, playmate friend uh, level. And we broke that. He went to a new school and could never establish that relationship again. When um, you retired from the Air Force, did you keep up your flying? Well, I went to Qantas. That's keeping up your flying. Yeah, I guess they took is. They took you in after, <laughs> after not taking you well, in before you joined the Air Force. Well, they were looking for dregs in those <laughs> when I came along. Uh, so I was lucky. I was 43 at that stage, so I was very lucky to get a, get a job at Qantas. Um, was that flying? Yeah, it was flying. What was did you fly? 747. So one of the 747. And one of the questions in the interview was, well, how are you going to feel about sitting in the back seat, as a second officer, right, sitting in the back seat of a 747 after being a single-seat pilot most of your life? And I said, well, I'll just have to roll with the punches, won't I? You know, like something silly like that. But um, and it didn't faze me particularly. I was happy to, um, you know, just sit and watch. And, and you know... The, Airline flying is relatively simple flying. Very procedural, very yeah, simple. It must have been like sitting in an armchair when you got it. Yeah, but, but I actually enjoyed the long-haul flying. I really did. Uh, don't ask me why. Um, I think I was able to impart a wee bit of knowledge to some of the younger guys sure. that I was with, even some of the captains. They're always, you know, some of them younger than me, of course, and they're always can- asking for counsel about their marriage, <laughs> marriage problems there and, you go. and uh, their financial problems. Not that I was very good at that, but... Uh, I had ideas, um, but certainly we'd talk about their marital issues and sure. things like that. And I had some; I was able to give some reasonable guidance there. I think um, for some of them. So your whole life, professional life, adult life, yeah. has been in the air. Absolutely, I joined. I left the farm at eighteen, and I flew until September last year. And now you're 
in control of a wonderful uh, Air Force Association magazine called Wings. Is that keeping you in the air mentally? Uh, it does, uh, but it's a different, <laughs> it's a different uh, thread of aviation, if you like, because um, what I do with the magazine, I try and source the material, and one of the objectives is to keep the material a bit variable. Yeah. I don't want to be bogged down with history, for example, sure, or with both. Sure. Um, you know, high technology stuff, all of it. But, and that's, that's a challenge. In fact, I've just about run out of ideas on that, so uh, I'm going to need some help to... Did you, did you ever make Astronaut? No, unfortunately not. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I, you know, if I had a chance, I'd jump at it. I think NASA's loss is our gain because you've had a very distinguished Air Force career since 1970 and like all of the other people that it's been a privilege to talk to, You've made a wonderful contribution to 100 years of history for the Royal Australian Air Force. So, Ron, Wing Commander retired, thank you for your time. Thank you, Gareth. Appreciate it. Globally, the RAAF has between 500 and 700 people on operations every day, contributing to coalition operations, peacekeeping and humanitarian and disaster relief. The RAAF takes pride in its service. It has a history of endeavour and sacrifice, which has won it a place in the hearts of all Australians and a position of respect among the armed services of all Australia's allies. The RAAF will never tarnish its record. It carries on in the proud tradition of Per Adua and Astra. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. Produced by Air Force Association New South Wales, which is a registered charity that focuses on the well-being of Air Force veterans and their families. If you would like to donate funds to help us with this important work, you can search Air Force Association New South Wales in Google and go to our website.